1: On the morning after the Super Bowl, the Otero family, who lived in Wichita, Kansas, was getting ready for the day. 38-year-old Joseph and 33-year-old Julie Otero had four children. 15-year-old Charlie, 14-year-old Danny, 13-year-old Carmen, 11-year-old Josephine, and 9-year-old Joseph Jr., who went by the name Joey. Joseph had served in the Air Force for 20 years. In Wichita, he worked as a mechanic and a flight instructor at Cook Airfield, and Julie worked at the Coleman factory. That morning, Joseph dropped off Charlie at his school, and then dropped off Danny and Carmen at their school. Afterward, he returned home. Most days, Joseph would have gone to work himself after dropping off the older kids. But he was injured, so he stayed home that day. When he returned home, Julie was with her two youngest children, and they were getting ready for school. Here is a quick word from our sponsor.
0: We take this few seconds off to inform you, our valued loyal listener, about the best health and fitness podcast shows. From the Nespod studios. Join us as we give you the best of the best health and wellness updates you can rely on for the treatment of chronic health problems
1: Then, something terrible happened. That afternoon, Danny and Carmen walked home from school. They found their parents' dead bodies in the master bedroom. Their mother's body was on the bed and a rope was tied around her neck. Their father's body was on the bedroom floor. A pillowcase and a plastic bag was over his head and a belt was wrapped around his neck. Their hands were tied behind their backs with Venetian blind cords. Danny and Carmen tried to cut the rope and the belt, but they couldn't. They also tried to call the police, but the phone line was dead. The oldest Otero child, Charlie, arrived home, and Danny and Carmen told him that their parents were playing a bad joke on them. Charlie went into the bedroom, and he knew his parents were dead. He cut off the belt and the rope. He also tried to call 911, but he found that the phone wasn't working. So he went outside and found a neighbor. The neighbor went into the Otero house, saw the dead bodies, and told the Otero children to go to his home. The neighbor then called the police. Officers arrived a few minutes later and they entered the house. In one of the bedrooms, they found the dead body of 9-year-old Joey. He also had been bound with Venetian blind cords and a plastic bag covered by a pillowcase was over his head. An officer continued to search the house. In the basement, he made one more horrifying discovery. It was the dead body of 9-year-old Josephine Otero. Her body was hanging from a rope. The rope was tied to a pipe in the ceiling. Forensic experts found semen on the floor around Josephine's body and some on her body. But she had not been sexually assaulted. The police concluded that as Josephine was hanging, the killer watched her and masturbated. The medical examiner would later determine that all the victims had been choked into unconsciousness and revived several times. The police discovered that the phone lines to the house were cut. There were no signs of forced entry. The police believed that the killer or killers entered through the unlocked back door. The police thought it was possible that the murders were committed by more than one person. They believed it would have been too difficult for one person to control all four people. Also, the crime scene appeared to show the work of two people. The house had been rifled through, and some things had been stolen. So one of the killers could have been there to burglarize the house. Perhaps he was looking for something, and this would explain why the victims had been choked out several times. They were being tortured into revealing the location of the item. Then there was the sex crime in the basement. Could a second criminal have taken Josephine into the basement while the rest of her family was being tortured upstairs? The problem was that witnesses reported seeing a single man leaving the Otero home. Also, one of the Otero's cars was stolen. People only saw one man in the car. The police followed up on many leads, but they didn't find out who killed the four members of the Otero family. About four months later, on April 4th, 1974, two men were walking down the street in front of 21-year-old Kathy Bright's home in Wichita. Kathy lived alone in the home. Like Julie Otero, she worked at Coleman. That afternoon, as the two men were walking down the street, they came across a man with a bloody face. He was Kathy's 19-year-old brother, Kevin Bright. He said he had been shot and he said that his sister was being attacked by a man inside her home. One of the men went to a local business and told them to call the police. Then the two men drove Kevin to the hospital. It turned out that he had been shot twice with a 22 caliber handgun, once in the forehead and once in the upper lip. An officer arrived at Kathy's home and discovered Kathy on the floor in a pool of blood. She was alive and barely conscious. A cord was tied around her neck. She had been strangled to the point where her larynx was broken. She had also been stabbed three times in the abdomen and eight times in the back. She was taken to the same hospital where her brother was being treated. But she died an hour later. The police interviewed Kevin while he was in the hospital. He said that he and his sister arrived at her home and found a man they didn't know inside the house. He had a 22 caliber handgun in his hand and another gun in his shoulder holster. The man said that he was wanted in California. He just wanted money, food, and clothes and he wouldn't hurt anyone. He led them to the bedroom where he made Kevin tie up Kathy with some of her clothes. He then tied up Kevin and tied him to a bedpost. He led Kathy to another bedroom and tied her to a chair. He then returned to the bedroom where Kevin was tied up and started strangling him. But Kevin fought back and he was able to free his hands. Then the killer pulled out his 22 caliber gun. They fought over the gun and the man managed to shoot Kevin in the forehead. The man then returned to Kathy and ensured she couldn't get loose. He then went back to the bedroom where Kevin was to make sure he was dead. Kevin was alive and conscious and he tried to grab the man's second gun. They fought and the man shot Kevin again with his twenty-two caliber gun, this time just below the nose. Kevin said that after being shot a second time, he got outside and found the two men who took him to the hospital. Kevin spent two weeks in the hospital and then he was released. The police learned that the killer had entered the back door while Kathy was out. He broke the screen on one of the back doors and then broke a piece of glass on the second door. He had also cut the phone line. The police thought it was possible that the same man who killed the Oteros had killed Kathy because there were similarities between the homicides. For example, Kathy and the Oteros were attacked in their homes. Their phone lines had been cut and the killer entered through the back door. The police thought that the Oteros' killer used a gun to control the victims and when the man confronted Kathy and Kevin, he used a gun to get them to do what he ordered. But there were major differences between the crimes. The big one was that Kathy was stabbed and her brother was shot while the Oteros were strangled or suffocated. Unfortunately, no arrests were made in Kathy's murder. Then, in October 1974, the police thought they had caught a break. They arrested a teenage boy who had been accused of molesting a five-year-old. He had a history of mental problems. They interviewed him about the Otero murders, and he confessed. He named two other people who helped him: his brother and his cousin. At the time, his brother was in a psychiatric hospital after attempting suicide. So all three men were arrested for the murders of the Oteros. On October 17, 1974, the Wichita Eagle newspaper published a story about the arrest of the three men. Five days later, a columnist at the Wichita Eagle received an unusual phone call. The caller, who didn't identify himself, said to go to the Wichita Public Library on Main Street. He said to look in the book Applied Engineering Mechanics. He said that there would be a letter detailing the Otero murders and it would prove the three young men in custody had nothing to do with the murders. The columnist alerted the police and officer went and found the letter. The entire letter has never been made public. Any mispronunciations or grammar mistakes are because the letter is being read verbatim as much as possible. I write this letter to you for the sake of the taxpayer as well as your time. Those three dudes you have in custody Are just trying to get publicity for the Otero murders. They know nothing at all. I did it by myself and with no one's help. There has been no talk either. Let's put this straight. I'm sorry this happened to society. They are the ones who suffer the most. It's hard to control myself. You probably call me psychotic with sexual perversion hang up. When this monster entered my brain, I will never know. But it here to stay. How does one cure himself? If you ask for help you killed four people, they will laugh or hit the panic button and call the cops. I can't stop so the monster goes on and heard me as well as society. Society can be thankful that there are ways for people like me to relieve myself at a time by daydreams of some victims being tortured and being mined. It's a big complicated game, my friend, of the monster playing, putting victims numbers down, follow them, checking up on them, waiting in the dark, waiting, waiting. The pressure is great, and sometimes he run the game to his liking. Maybe you can stop him. I can't. He has already chosen his next victim. Or Here is a quick word from our sponsor.
0: We take this few seconds off to inform you, our valued loyal listener, about the best health and fitness podcast shows from the Nespod Studios. Join us as we give you the best of the best health and wellness updates you can rely on for the treatment of chronic health problems
1: I don't know who they are yet. The next day after I read the paper, I will know, but it's too late. Good luck hunting. Yours truly, guiltily. P.S. Since sex criminals do not change their ammo, or by nature cannot do so, I will not change mine. The code words for me will be, bind them, torture them, kill them, B.T.K. You see, he added again, they will be on the next victim. Also in the letter, he gives a detailed account of how he murdered the Oteros. Once the police got the letter, there was debate amongst the investigators if it really was from the killer. He knew things about the murders that were never made public. For example, he wrote that Joseph Otero's watch had been stolen. But he also got some details wrong, like the pattern and colors of some of the victim's clothes. Also, at the time, the police believed that the same man killed Catherine Bright. Why hadn't he mentioned Kathy in the letter? The police tried to communicate with BTK through the newspaper, but they didn't get response. After the letter, the killer went quiet. The police and the media had no idea why. They thought perhaps he was arrested, moved away from the area, or died. Unfortunately, it was only a temporary hiatus. On March 17, 1977, 26-year-old Shirley Vane was at home in Wichita with her three children, 8-year-old Bud, 6-year-old Stephen, and 4-year-old Stephanie. That afternoon, Stephen pounded on a neighbor's door. When the neighbor came to the door, he told them to call the police because his mother was dead. The neighbor went to the family's home and found Shirley, dead, on a bed. She was bound and a plastic bag was over her head. The medical examiner later determined she had been strangled with a cord and then the bag was placed over her head to finish her off. The police found some semen on Shirley's underwear, but she had not been sexually assaulted. The police interviewed the three kids. Stephen said that before the attack, he had gone to a nearby store to cash a money order and get soup for his mother. He said that a man stopped him and showed him a photograph of a woman and a boy. The man asked him if he had seen either and Stephen told him he hadn't. Stephen then made his way home. As he entered his house, he saw the man knocking on the door of his neighbor's home. A few minutes later, there was a knock at their door. Stephen Bud started to open the door, and then the man forced his way in. He then pulled out a gun. Shirley was in her bedroom, and she came out to see what was happening. The man told her he was going to tie her up and take some photographs. He attempted to bind the children with electrical tape, but they fought back. So he ended up putting them in the bathroom. The bathroom had two doors. He tied one end of a rope to a doorknob and the other end to a pipe. He then walked out the other door and placed a bed in front of that door. He entered the room where he had placed Shirley and tied her to the bed. He then strangled her from behind. The kids managed to get one of the doors open a little bit. They screamed at the man to leave their mother alone. They said someone was coming over soon, so he better leave. Then the phone started ringing. After killing Shirley, the man left the house. Steve was able to break a panel on the door and he climbed through it. He then ran to a neighbor's house and got help. The police wondered if the killer was scared off by the prospect of someone coming over and possibly the phone ringing and this stopped him from murdering the children. No arrests were made in the wake of the murder. 25 year old Nancy Joe Fox lived in a duplex in Wichita. She had two part time jobs, one at a law office and another at a jewelry store. She didn't drink and she sang in her church's choir. In late autumn 1977, something unusual happened. Someone had broken into her home and gone through her underwear drawer. She told her friends about the incident but didn't report it to the police. On the morning of December 9th, 1977, the following call came into 911. You, you will find a homicide at 643 South Virginia, Nancy Pops. I'm sorry, sir. I'm getting your sentence. What is your address? 843
0: South Virginia, 8th Correct.
1: Because of the quality, that was probably pretty hard to understand, so I'll tell you exactly what happened in the call. Operator number one says, Dispatcher. BTK then says, Yes, you will find a homicide at 843 South Paraching, Nancy Fox. Operator number one says, I'm sorry, sir, I can't understand you. What's the address? Then Operator number two says, I believe, 843 South Perishing. Then BTK says, That is correct. Then he hangs up. The police went to the address, which was the home of Nancy Fox. She was dead on her bed. She had been bound with a cord and strangled with a belt. Fox had not been sexually assaulted. However, the killer had ejaculated on her nightgown. But she wasn't wearing the nightgown. Instead, it was found near her head. The police noted that the phone line was cut. The killer got inside the house by prying open a window. They believed that he broke in while Fox was out and waited for her to come home. The police didn't make any arrests regarding her murder. But they did suspect she was killed by the man who called himself BTK. The police were hesitant to go public regarding the possibility that a serial killer was preying on the citizens of Wichita. They thought it would cause a panic. On January 31, 1978, the Wichita Eagle received an unusual poem typed on a three-by-five index card. Shirley locks, Shirley locks, wilt thou be mine? Thou shalt not scream, not yet. Feed the line, but lay on a cushion and think of me, and death, and how it's going to be. The employee at the newspaper who read the poem thought it was meant for the classified section for Valentine's Day, but there was no payment. So the card ended up in the dead letter department. The fact that the newspaper didn't acknowledge or print the poem upset the author, so he said the same poem, along with another poem, A drawing and a letter to the ABC affiliate, Cake TV. The second poem was about Nancy Fox. What is that I can see? Cold icy hands taking hold of me. For death has come, you all can see. Hell has opened its gates to trick me. Oh, death. Oh, death. Can't you spare me over another year? I'll stuff your jaws until you can't talk. I'll bind your legs till you can't walk. I'll tie your hands so you can't make a stand. And finally, I'll close your eyes so you can't see. I'll bring sexual death unto you for me. BTK. The drawing was a detailed image of how he left Fox's body in her bed. Then the typewritten letter reads, I find the newspaper not writing about the poem on vain, unamusing. A little paragraph would have been enough. I know it not the news media fault. The police chief, he keeps things quiet and doesn't let the public know there's psychopaths running laws strangling mostly women. There are seven in the ground who will be next. How many do I have to kill before I get my name in the paper or some national attention? The cop thinks that all those deaths are not related? Golly gee, yes, the ammo is different in each. But look, a pattern is developing. The victims are tied up. Most have been women. Phone cut. Bring some bondage matter sadious tendencies. No struggle outside the death spot. No witness except the Vane's kids. They were lucky. A phone call saved them. I was going to take the boys and put plastic bags over their head like I did Joseph and Shirley. And then I would hang the girl. God, oh God, what a beautiful sexual relief that would have been. Josephine, when I hung her, really turned me on. Her pleading for mercy... Then the rope took hold. She, helpless, staring at me with wide terror-filled eyes. The rope getting tighter, tighter. You don't understand these things because you're not under the influence of Factor X—the same thing that made Son of Sam, Jack the Ripper, Harvey Gladman, Boston Strangler, Doctor H. H. Holmes, Pantyhose Strangler, Florida Hillside Strangler, Ted of the West Coast, and many more infamous character kill, which seems senseless, but we cannot help it. There is no help, no cure, except death or being caught and put away. It's a terrible nightmare, but you see, I don't lose any sleep over it. After a thing like Fox, I come home and go about my life like anyone else. And I will be like that until the urge hit me again, and not continuous, and I don't have a lot of time. It take time to set a kill, one mistake, and all over. Since I about blew it on the phone, handwriting is out letter guide is too long and typewriter can be traced too. My short poem of death, and maybe a drawing. Later on, real picture, and maybe a tape of the sound will come your way. How will you know me? Before a murder or murders, you'll receive a copy of the initials BTK. You keep that copy, the original will show up someday on Guess Who. May you not be the unlucky one. P.S. How about some name for me? It's time. Seven down, and many more to go. I like the following. How about you? The BTK Strangler, Wichita Strangler, Poetic Strangler, The Bondage Strangler, or Psycho, The Wichita Hangman, The Wichita Executioner, The Grot Phantom, The Asphyxiator. Then he signs the letter off, BTK. On the next page, he lists his supposed victims after the Oteros. It reads, Number 5. You guess the motive and victim. Number 6. You found Shirley Vane lying belly down on an unmade bed in the northeast bedroom, hand-tied behind back with black tape and cord, feet and ankles with black tape and legs, ankles tied to the west side of the bed with small off-white cord, wrapped around leg, hands, arms, finally the neck many times. An off-white plastic bag over her head, Loop with a pink nightie was barefooted. She was sick, used a glass of water, and smoked one or two cigarettes. House a total mess. Kids took some toys with them to the bathroom. Bed against the east bathroom door. Shows at random with some pre planning. Motive Factor X. Number 7. One Nancy Fox lying belly down on made bed in southwest bedroom. Hands tied behind back with red pantyhose. Feet together, with yellow, nighty semi nude with pink sweater, and bra small, necklace glasses on west dresser, panties below butt, many different than hosiery. She had a smoke and went to the bathroom before the final act. Very neat housekeeper and dresser, rifle, purse and kitchen, anti paper bag, white coat and living room, heat up to about ninety degrees. Christmas tree lights on, Nighties and hose around the room, hose big of orange color, and hosiery on bed. Driver license gone. Seminole stayed on or in blue women wear. Shows at random with a little pre-planning motive factor X. Number eight, next victim maybe. You'll find her hanging with a wire noose. Hands behind her back with black tape or... Here is a quick word from our sponsor.
0: We take this few seconds off to inform you, our valued loyal listener, about the best health and fitness podcast shows Enjoy the show.
1: Record, Fee with tape or cord gagged, then cord around the body to the neck, possible seminal stain in anus or on body, will be chosen at random, subpreplanning, preplanning motive, factor X. The head of the TV station called the police. One thing about the letter is that he claimed to have killed seven people, but he doesn't name his fifth victim. The police had no idea who that victim might be, or it was possible that the killer was playing games with them. The TV station wanted to go public with the letter. The police did not want them to do that, but they did allow them to talk about parts of the letter on their broadcast. The police also had a press conference and acknowledged there was a serial killer on the loose. They also said that he identified himself as BTK, Bind, Torture, Kill. They warned people to check their phone lines when they got home to ensure that they were not cut. They also wanted people to make sure their doors and windows were locked. In the weeks after the press conference, gun sales in Wichita went through the roof and people nailed shut their back doors and windows. Unfortunately, the press conference did not lead to any arrests. On April 28, 1979, 63-year-old Anna Williams returned to her Wichita home. She was a recent widow who lived alone. She discovered someone had broken into her home. She tried to call the police, but the phone line was dead. She went to a neighbor's and called the police, and then the police searched her home. They found part of a broom handle and a length of rope. Also, a scarf and some jewelry had been stolen. After that, Williams moved out of her house. Her daughter picked up her mail every so often. A month and a half after the break-in, she picked up an envelope. Inside was the jewelry and the scarf that had been stolen. There was also a drawing of a bound woman. Finally, there was the poem that BD- Oh, Anna, why didn't you appear? Twas perfect plan of deviant pleasure so bold that spring night. My inner felling... My inner felling hot with propension of a new awakening season. Worn wet with inner fear and rapture, my pleasure of entanglement, like new vines at night. Oh, Anna, why didn't you appear? Drop of fear, fresh spring rain would roll down from your nakedness to scent to lofty fever that burns within. In that small world of longing, fear, rapture, and desperation, the game we play, fall on devil's ears. Fantasy spring forth, mounts to storm fury, then winter clam at night. O Anna, why didn't you appear? Alone, now in another time span, I lay sweet enraptured garments across most private thought. Bath spring moist grass, clean before the sun, enslaved with control, warm wind scenting the air, sunlight sparkle tears in eyes so deep and clear. Alone again, I trod past memory of Mears, and ponder why for number eight was not. Oh, Anna, why didn't you appear? EK sent to Cake TV. What is that I can see, cold icy hands taking hold of me? For death has come, you all can see. Pal has opened his gate to trick me. Oh death, oh death, can't you spare me over another year? I'll stuff your jaws till you can't talk. I'll bind your legs till you can't walk. I'll tie your hands till you can't make a stand. And finally, I'll close your eyes so you can't see me. I'll bring sexual death unto you for me, BTK. William's daughter turned over the contents of the envelope to the police then BTK went quiet again. Unfortunately, since this wasn't the first time he had gone quiet, people weren't entirely convinced that he had permanently finished killing. But by April 1985, it had been seven and a half years since BTK committed his last murder. In April 85, 53-year-old Marine Hedge lived alone in Park City, Kansas. Park City is about nine miles north of Wichita. Hedge worked at a cafeteria in a hospital and she never missed work. So when she didn't show up for her shift on April 27th, 1985, her supervisor was concerned and called her family. Her family called the police and the police went to her home. They found that the phone line had been cut and there were signs of forced entry. Upstairs in her bedroom, the sheets from her bed were missing. Also, her car was missing. Yet, yeah, for some reason, the police considered a missing persons case and not a mysterious disappearance. Five days after Hedge went missing, her car was found. In the trunk were her bed sheets. On May 5th, 1985, Marine Hedge's dead body was found in a ditch. The medical examiner determined she had been strangled to death. At the time, no one connected her murder to BTK for several reasons. A major one was that she was killed over seven years since the last murder. Also, BTK had never kidnapped anyone or moved a body from a house. Third, all the other victims lived in Wichita and had resided in Park City. While the police didn't connect her murder to BTK, the search for BTK continued. They had a special task force nicknamed Ghostbusters, and they were investigating the BTK murders. In 1985, DNA testing was done on 225 of the best suspects. They were all cleared. After that, the politicians in the city believed that the investigation was too expensive so they had the task force disbanded. 28-year-old Vicki Weggerly lived with her husband, Bill, and their two children, 10-year-old Stephanie and 2-year-old Brandon, in a small house in Wichita. On the morning of September 16, 1986, Vicki was at home with her toddler son. Around 11 a.m., her husband, Bill, was driving home to have lunch. As he drove towards their home, he saw a car that looked just like his wife's car, but a man was driving it. When Bill arrived home, he was even more confused because his wife's car wasn't there. He went inside and found his son crying in the living room. Then on the bedroom floor, he found the dead body of his wife. An island stocking was tied around her neck. The police didn't suspect BTK because they thought he was no longer active. Instead, they believed that Bill killed his wife. He adamantly denied it. But they could find no evidence, so they didn't charge him with anything. On January 19th, 1991, a friend of 62-year-old Dolores Davis came over to her Wichita home and found she wasn't there. He thought it was odd because they had dinner the night before and she knew he was coming over. He got outside her house and became even more concerned. The phone had been pulled out of the wall. The glass sliding door had been shattered with a cinder block. The sheets that were on her bed were missing. The friend reported Davis missing to the police. Two weeks later, Davis's body was found under a bridge. Whether well, body was a strange mask. It was white, but had been painted to look more flesh-like. It had bright red lips and glued-on eyelashes. The string that held the mask to the face was a cord from a Venetian blind. It had been 17 years since the Oteros were murdered, and just over 13 years since PTK's last confirmed murder. No one had any reason to suspect that Loris Davis was murdered by BTK. Also, at the time, no one was investigating the BTK case. So like the other 10 murders, her case went cold. And it would stay that way for nearly a decade and a half. In our next episode, we'll cover the investigation and eventual identification of BTK. This will conclude the episode.